Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Anthropology a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Damani Partridge, who is the author of the book, Blackness as a Universal Claim, Holocaust Heritage, Non-Citizen Futures, and Black Power in Berlin, published by the University of California Press. Dr. Partridge, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book. And so you are the author um, of the of the previous book, Hypersexuality and Headscarves, Race, Sex, and Citizenship in the New Germany. And that was published by Indiana University Press. And in this book that we're going to talk about today, which of course is Blackness as a Universal Claim, it, it also examines race and cultural politics in Germany. And so you have this long history of uh, doing this kind of research in this context. And I wanted to just begin by way of an introduction for you to ask how you came to study you know, Germany anthropology and how you came to write the book, Blackness as a Universal Claim. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I guess Germany, I was a middle school student you know, at uh, in Ithaca, actually. Um, and the German was just the best teacher, so I decided to take German. And then in high school, I had a friend who was going to an exchange program. My mom said, oh, you should do that, too. <laughs> so I applied for Rotary Exchange. And that was 1989, 90. So that was the year the wall fell. I didn't know that was going to happen, obviously. But um, so I ended up in Germany um, as a Rotary Exchange student. And I lived with three families. One was a Turkish-German family. There were two doctors. It was, it was kind of a middle class family, a lawyer and a um, secretary. And then I lived on a, on a, far, on a farm, a uh, dairy farm. And what struck me about that experience is that even though I was African-American, I, I didn't have the same, I didn't feel the same kind of like exclusions or expectations or lack of expectations about blackness that I had felt in the U.S. But um, <clears throat> there was a lot of animosity against Turkish people. Um, there was like, there was graffiti all over that said, Turks, get out. And like even my classmates would yell at people in the street saying, you know, go home or get out of the country. And then when I talked, when I lived with the Turkish German family, they also talked about those kind of experiences. So it was really, um, to me, interesting to see 
this kind of um, racism or racial exclusion from the perspective of someone who wasn't, who weren't, you know, explicitly or visually black, um, but that I could identify with that. But then, and yet, I was seen as something else. It seemed like I was kind of exceptional in some way because I didn't have the kind of same kind of experience I was having in the U.S. Um, and so then um, I went. So then that was high school, and then I went to college. Uh, and then I applied for Fulbright and came back to Germany um, in 1995. And at that point, I lived with an East German family who had, they, they had belonged to the party, actually, the East German, the Socialist Party in East Germany. Um, but this is after the fall of the wall. And then again, they talked about their feelings of exclusion after the wall because they weren't, their, their experience was no longer valued, you know, the, even though they had this kind of responsibility before. And so we really connected over that, um, even though, again, it wasn't, blackness in the way that I had experienced it, but there was this kind of um, not being at the center of the society, even though it, for them, even though they had one, they once were. Um, and so that year I applied, I was deciding as an undergrad, I was a major in political science and music. Um, and, but I like, and I, I went to Germany then as a Fulbright scholar to do a project on um, the experience of black Germans after the fall of the wall and thinking about the relationship between East and West, like how did, how did they come together to think about blackness after the fall of the wall as black Germans? Um, and then I decided then that to apply to graduate school in anthropology at Berkeley. Um, and then that began the, that this beginning of this project of who's German, who's Germany, who's futures. And then that, that gradually shifted into thinking about non the category of what I call non-citizens in my first book um, and thinking about what kinds of, how, how does one become a non-citizen for whom, who experienced freedom after the fall of the wall? Like the wall, the fall of the wall was supposed to be this moment of massive global celebration about the, I mean, what Francis Fukuyama called the end of history, which I mean, now no one says that anymore, but, um, but there was supposed to be like this, like finally, like this liberal democracy concept had won and everyone was free. But then at the same time, people of color, Turkish Germans, Arab Germans, lots of other people were experiencing massive violence. There were like that massive neo-Nazi attacks. The there was attacks in Vietnamese homes of former Vietnamese labor migrants in East Germany, and so I thought that I needed to expand this category um, to think about non-citizens more broadly. And so I, I started analyzing then what I called in that book exclusionary incorporation that people were accepted in the society, but then they weren't accepted fully, or they they had to. In this and that book is called hypersexual headscarf, so they had to either perform live up to these expectations of hypersexuality and the headscarf seemed to be blocking that. So then that was also a problem for the, the, nor the mainstream society. So I was analyzing that, that process in the first book. In this book, I wanted to think about um, blackness and universal claim. I wanted to think about, well, what does one do amidst that, those kinds of exclusions? What, how can one organize oneself to, to think about a different kind of future? And how does, how does that happen collectively? Um, and for this, and, and part of uh, understanding how that happens, um, I went to a theater performance and I saw this theater um, called Theater X in Berlin. And I saw that as a, as a space in which these practices of um, creating a different kind of possibility were being worked out, you know, kind of uh, in everyday life. Yeah, thank you so much for that, um, that, that answer. And so the book, I wanted to start, I guess, with your idea, with the idea that organizes the book which is, you know, blackness as a universal claim. And you examine and theorize how immigrants in Germany leverage blackness to make these claims and express their experiences with racism. And I thought, you know, this is, if this is 
interesting for many reasons. One of them is because we might think about, you know, whiteness is usually what stands in for the universal. Um, but so you offer us this, this other, you know, idea of universality. And so I wondered just if you could talk about then this idea of blackness as a universal claim. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You're right. the, the whiteness. Yeah, that's right. Whiteness stands in as a universal, but it's not, it doesn't call itself out as, as, as white, though. So then it's like, very confusing for someone um, and, and, and harmful, you know, potentially for someone who thinks that they can access that universal as someone who's not white or someone who. Um, <clears throat> so then for me to think about, not necessarily to say that blackness, I mean, it's not clear that blackness is universal necessarily, but what was clear to me is that people are, are, are seeing blackness as a possibility for political articulation. Um, and I, an example following that, was helpful for me because not not only for me but hopefully for other people as well um to think about what kind of political claims one can make about the future about about the world if one doesn't assume that that this liberal democratic you know version you know is going to make them free you know like so then um to think from that position of blackness i think comes with kinds of responsibility as well. Um, but uh, in this project, I, I mean, I observe people making claims to blackness in the theater, like by, by thinking about, uh, I mean, in, in Berlin, <clears throat> I think in other places as well, you know, Muhammad Ali is something that like lots of people wear, even whether or not they're black as a kind of, as a symbol of, of liberation. Um, in the theater, they had a little picket sign with Malcolm X. Um, they, <clears throat> worked out and practiced through like the politics of Angela Davis. Um, and then they thought, and then they went further to think about the history of slavery and, and thinking about from that, if one begins to, to think about freedom from the position of the actual slave, which is, I mean, could be problematic, but at least it doesn't, it doesn't begin with like an assumption, like it begins with the actual slave as opposed to like um, Susan Buck Morris talks about the metaphor of the slave and in, in the, you know, like in the theories of Locke, Rousseau, and, and other Enlightenment theorists. But if one thinks of the position from the actual slave and the effects of slavery um, now, then, that, then the demands on what it would mean to be free would be quite different. And I think that that is the, for me, that if one is to think about any kind, any form of, of freedom that, that could be universal, it would have to begin from that kind of position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I like that um, succinct description that you give of that idea. Um, and then, because in the book, it's you divide the book into thirds, and the beginning of the third, you know, you the beginning of the book, you locate blackness as this occupation um, with post World War II African American soldiers in Germany. And so, you know, it kind of answers this question, I guess, of like, well, where where do these ideas? Where where's one locus of where these ideas about blackness come from? Um, and on page twenty seven. I'm going to quote you because you write the figure of the black American soldier allowed German access to America, American capital and black possibility. And I wondered if you could just begin by talking about this idea of occupying blackness, um, because that was one of your main ideas in the in the first part of the book. And, you know, how did this inform imaginations in Germany? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think like this idea of occupying blackness is both uh, it's both actually happening, but it's also a kind of um, theoretical or um, imagined kind of possibility uh, or imagined reality um, in the sense that 
blackness is 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 there in the society like in the cultural life of the society you know um through music through dance through and that's the one that's that some people say well that's kind of american imperialism but i'm not i'm not focusing on that aspect I'm not focusing on what comes in spite of the imperialism right so that <clears throat> when the americans occupied after the second world war when they occupied germany also it's important to think that it's not just america occupying germany but it's also black troops black black and this you know black people occupying germany and what difference does that make to thinking about blackness to thinking about um freedom to thinking about the future and i think that in germany made a lot of difference in the sense that a lot of german the germans who had been defeated um could identify with the black soldiers in a way that they couldn't identify the white soldiers because they also saw those as people who were being oppressed you know because they they knew about the civil rights movement about jim crow um in the south um, and then there were there were kind of relationships, you know, where black troops would give <clears throat> these defeated Germans like, um, you know, things to eat and give them. They were like impoverished also after the war. Um, and they would kind of look after look after them in certain in, in certain ways. And there were also these kind of relationships. There are these these I mean, in my first book, I talk about this, but I think it's relevant also for the second book. And this is, there were these um, dance clubs where there were only because the army also had segregation. There were, there were only black men and then German women, um, white German women. And so that this this emerged out of the fact that even though the U.S. was claiming freedom or liberation, liberating Germany after the war, after the war um, there were these contradictions, right? And this idea of democracy in the sense that it also included Jim Crow um, and, and Germans were aware of that. Um, so that occupation then created a different kind of... Um, it, it sort of it, it it nuanced this idea that you know like this idea of, of freedom that that was going to emerge or this idea of democracy that was that was supposed to emerge in the sense that the people being occupied could also see the contradictions vis-a-vis blackness um and i think another important point here is that after the first world war which tina camp also talks about in her uh, book other germans um the the french sent um black troops also to occupy the rhineland in germany but those were seen at that point that that kind of that occupation was seen as a um, as a horror, and there were those troops were accused as uh, were accused of raping German women. It was seen as like you know it's it, it was like the ultimate humiliation just to to have these black troops occupy Germany in that way. Um, but then that shifted with the with the American um, black occupation in the sense that blackness was then seen as a different as a kind of possibility. Um, so I think that's when I'm thinking about occupation and blackness, that, that's the trajectory I'm, I'm thinking about in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, that's, it's really fascinating to think about that, too, because you bring up this idea of imperialism. But then what happens when, as you said, the occupying troops are actually black? How does that shift um, understandings of the U.S.? And what kind of what does that open up for people? Um and so in the in the second part of the book, then you talk about you give us like this context, I guess, which is the Holocaust in the memory of the Holocaust in Germany. And and, you know, this seems really, really critical because of what it, you know, forecloses and opens up for um for immigrants in in Germany. And so one of the ways you discuss this memory is through the Holocaust Memorial. And I thought that was really interesting because it 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 links to some of our discussions about um, memorials and 
uh, statues in the United States and our current debates around monuments, race, racism, and history in the U.S. Um, and obviously, this occurs elsewhere. And so, you you know, you also you know come into these complicated issues through a monument in Germany. Um, and so, how does the Holocaust Memorial attend to or not attend to racism and exclusion in Germany? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> obviously, that's a that's, that's a great question, and obviously. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to to um, fully you know address it adequately because I think there's a lot there. I mean, both in terms of the, how the U.S. does memory politics, how Germany does memory politics, and the relationship between the two. Like I know that the <clears throat> the lynching memorial in the in Alabama, I think, was also inspired in part by the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin, um, because the memory culture in the U.S. is is strange in the sense that even the like if you see the Confederate army as as a defeated army, you don't you don't necessarily see that in the memorials. There's still a memorialization of that history um, in a in a way that also erases the um, horror you know um, that goes along with it. Um, <clears throat> in the German in the German context, I mean, what's I um, part of what I think is important to think in, in terms of memory is the fact that. That um, there was this, I mean, mass murder was a, was a central part of what was happening in the Second World War. And it's critical to remember and critical to think about how one should never do that again. But the part of the question is, um, what is it that should never be done again? And to who, you know, so, um, and how, do, how does one, is that, a, is that a particular or is it universal? Or how, do, you know, how, does, how does one think both historically, but also in the future and thinking about what one shouldn't do again? And then... Um, or what, what a nation shouldn't do again, or what a you know a, a continent, you know, um, because the murder was happening across Europe. Um, so, for me in the book, um, the 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 I, I'm dealing with the fact that Germany, you know, because it's been able to create these memorials and think about critically about its history, it has it has taking on this teaching role of also teaching others how to remember how not to do that again. And in particular, it's how not to do anti-Semitism, um, I think. But then that, that sometimes also gets expanded out to thinking about not how to do racism. But for the for 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 Arab and and Turkish Germans in particular, um, I found that in Germany, the assumption is that they're anti-Semitic, but also that um, they should also be accountable in some way for this for this memory um, for Holocaust memory because of a, a history, you know, because of anti-Semitism. Um, in, 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 in multiple contexts. But then if, if, if they are to be accountable, then how, what kind of, um, to what extent can they also participate in this, in the, in the, in the memory politics, but also in talking about democracy after, you know, um, or talking about inclusion or talking about freedom at, at, at a broad, on a broad level. But what I found in, in the German context is that when people said that they were experiencing racism, often that was, when, particularly when Turkish and Arab Germans said that they were experiencing racism, that was seen as anti-Semitic because um, the racism that Germans could fully focus on was the was the racism of the Second World War, was the racism of of mass uh, murder, um, was the racism of genocide. Um, so, what for me was important in the book was to link that to, and, and then blackness then becomes a different kind of possibility because it, if you if you make claims to blackness or if you make a model of of countering 
um, these experiences of exclusion that that are mar that are modeled on other kind of, on black struggles, then it doesn't then one doesn't get accused of denying the Holocaust in the same way. Um, so in the book, I'm trying to think these these histories, these forms of memory, these forms of mobilization together, and then think about well, if one is particular, perhaps the other can be thought of as as more more universal. And that um, because blackness as First, first this occupy this occupying occupation or blackness as an occupying form, and then um, through the claims to blackness, um, it becomes a different kind of launching pad. Um, but I think that has to. That, I think it does have to be done in relationship to the Holocaust memory because that's also part of the reference when people are thinking about racism, and particularly in the German context. Um, but I think that could also be one has to contend with that also more broadly. I think. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating in the in the book because it's something I had never thought about or, you know, considered where it's like what what is it like then to live in like the afterlife of this other kind of atrocity and 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 you and you talk about this in the book how then the atrocities in the past and, you know, racism and exclusion are not are not thought to be happening it currently it's something that happened, you know, in the in his, historically um, and that we need to move beyond um, and so when these people talk about you know racism currently it like disrupts these ideas um, of there's there's not a way to sort of conceptualize it um, within the idea of the Holocaust memory um, yeah, can I just add yeah. something there um, I think yeah I think that's right and I, but I think that increasingly there are I mean people have started to talk about colonialism too or German colonialism in particular which was kind of initially not was getting ignored, right? So that the so that the picture has gotten complicated, but still, I mean, it, I think it needs to get even more complicated in terms of how one thinks about racism now, um, and who should be able to make claims to thinking about racism and 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 undoing it, you know, and how that. Um, so that, I mean, that that's happening through this kind of activism that I was observing, um, uh, but it's still. I mean, I think there's still a lot a lot more work to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so. Um... I'm glad you said that so we can talk about that, like what you were, you know, what you were observing and the young people that you were were, were working with, um, because you seem to, you know, accompany young people in these different, uh, you know, in different parts of the of the city. One time, like you, you go with them to the memorial, you're going with them to different, you know, excursions and whatnot, but you're also with them in these film projects and in the theater. And you examine how, you know, migrants mobilize blackness to make their claims through uh, theater productions and performances. And I think you're specifically working with the Youth Theater Bureau in Berlin and you attend their rehearsals. And again, I'm, I'm quoting you, you write that the rehearsal space, quote, offered the possibility of to undo fixing and that blackness was a possible position from which one could no longer feel stuck. So blackness seemed to offer, as you were saying, these activists ways to complicate the, the situation. And so I wondered if you could talk about that, um, you know, what you saw in these rehearsals and your ideas about it. Yeah, um... Yeah, I mean, I guess I went to a performance where I was really struck by how outspoken these young people were in the theater about their own situation in a way that I hadn't, like, when I, I didn't, in that first week I did research in schools and that kind of possibility, or speaking in that way, wouldn't really be tolerated, you know, like, there was no space for young people in the schools to express how they really felt, you know, um, but in the theater I saw, like, this, that kind of 
spark and possibility and freedom and you know like to to say how how one really felt and what one wanted to do about it um and so then i and i said well where you know where is this how where is this coming from so then i went to the theater which then was called theater bureau um theater bureau in berlin and then now like they're most the 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 they're most known by this their new name which is theater x um and i so i went into the and they happened to be doing a play uh, about blackness, about black power, and someone said, a young woman said, you know, you know, we need to learn about this. Can you help us? I was like, well, you know, like that's not, you know, like it's not my expertise, but you know, yes, of course, you know, I would be happy. So it was like, so it was, it was my possibility of, of going into the theater. And then they said that, well, you, but you can't just observe; you have to also act. You know, so that was a little bit intimidating, but um, it, it gave me access to thinking with them about the relationship between black power and their struggle and also what they might do um, about it. And then I also noticed that <clears throat> they didn't have to, they didn't have to have all the answers, but they could work out these things in the theater. Like they, they, like through improvisational performances, which then became the play that they called um, black hair Germany that they did at the end of the year. Like, so I, I, it took like about six months, like when I was in that, when they were doing that play to the end, like when they, I think after actually I came went back to the U.S. and I came back and they then performed the the, the play. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah and that was uh um that was that was really interesting too when you talk about the the young people and their uh uh as you said like this rehearsal became i think you said the rehearsal like was the revolution like that was this critical space of uh you know of them coming to you know, coming to say whatever they that is they wanted to say, and in the book too, you you continually do this. You're you're careful to distinguish between appropriation and you know solidarity and maybe identification, um, because we know as you as you said they're they're taking up these ideas of black power. They're performing them. They're not people of African descent, and so. Um, you know, and so there's a way in which we, we know that blackness can be can be used in in harmful ways, right? That are inappropriated, you know, by many different kinds of people um, in ways that are not is not necessarily one might say not acting in the interest of black people, um, and so. And we know that anti-blackness can be rife in many different locations. And so I wanted wondered if you could talk about then this distinction that you make um, between like appropriation and um, and the solidarity, which I think is what you were seeing with your interlocutors. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think 
appropriate appropriation goes with like sort of making uh like profiting from other people's struggle or you know like prof- profiting from black struggle without um caring or or um about black people um or 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 performing you know in that that in itself becomes a kind of a form of anti-blackness i think um it's some of the people there were black people of black african descent in the theater as well they weren't the majority um like one of the main actors was um from west africa and what struck me you know is that he came not necessarily thinking you know it wasn't clear to me the extent to which he thought of himself as black but then blackness even for him became a an important way of articulating any kind of possibility right because for him like he he didn't even have a you know he came to germany without any kind of status right he had a uh, so he was in danger of being deported but then the theater became like they were able to make claims about his um his he became an actor and then because he was an actor he became he got the he the theater advocated for him to get the right to stay in berlin and then ultimately he could stay in Germany without having to do these other kinds of, without having to perform the other kinds of expectations What I talked about in the first book, like of the hypersexual performance, which would then allow him to get married to someone who then could give him a status. Or he called, he talked about in the film that he made later, um, having a German baby, which then would give him some sort of marginal status. But it was in black, it was actually blackness that made his, this performance of blackness, this rehearsal of blackness and in the theater and then in everyday life. Um, that allowed him to find a way to manage his life in Germany and stay in Germany and claim right to that to that um, possibility. Um, yeah, so can you just remind me of the question? That, that, oh, yeah, it was between the difference between appropriation and yes. maybe solidarity. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that... Um, and I'm not, I mean, I don't, you know, it's like it probably can't be absolute. Like there could be, you know, and there were moments of what one might see as anti-Blackness, even in these kinds of spaces, right? Um, or there are ways in which Black people might, might not feel completely comfortable, at least, you know. Um, but I think that, that that attending to those to those tensions is 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 critical to to avoiding the risks, dangers, injuries of appropriation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the kind of, and, and, and that's the kind of, so I, I the thing that I, I mean, the term that I like even more than solidarity, because I mean, in, in, at one point in the book, I talk about, like people claim solidarity, but actually um, there's still hierarchy often in these claims of solidarity, because the people are, the, the people saying that, well, we're in solidarity with you, there's like, there's the us who's in solidarity who then still maintain our position, you know, of, of, of being on top or kind of determining what the next move should be. So, I mean, the, the term that I like most is mutual struggle. Um, uh, so when that, when that struggle is thought of as mutual, then it becomes, then it shifts from, at least it, 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 it lessens the risk of appropriation and moves more towards a kind of mutual possibility into which one is then also accountable to, to black people, to blackness, to, you know, the histories of, of slavery, you know, I think, um, in not only in the U S but also in, in Europe, which people often forget, right. It's not, slavery is not just the American thing, right. It's, it's like, a, it's, you know, it, even, even chattel slavery, right. It relies on, um, these dynamics between, you know, the other people have talked about between the, the, the Caribbean, the U S in Europe, Europe and Africa. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And you just talked about how one of your interlocutors, I think, what's his name, Mamadou in, in the book, yeah. Um, yeah. where he, he makes a film. And that was another aspect of cultural production that you were looking at in the book. And you had this project or you were part of this project called Filming the Future from Berlin. And um, so I, I had the privilege of being your colleague at Michigan. And so I also remember you talking about this like a filming the future, I think from Detroit. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I think, so you've, I think you've done this project in different places and I wondered if you could talk about this project. I remember briefly talking with you about it in Michigan and it sounded absolutely fascinating. And so I wondered if you could talk about filming the future, um, you know, how it's structured. And because I think you're actually, actually teaching people how to, t- how to, uh, you know, make a film. Um, and I think you've done this in the classroom. You've done it in Germany and the United States. I mean, this is, this is amazing. And so I wondered if you could just tell us about this project and you yeah. talk about it in the book. Yeah. I mean, the, the project was actually inspired actually, well, at the same time I was doing research for the book. Um, I, I worked with the theater acts and there was this other theater called Ballhaus Naunienstrasse, which was a, it's, it used to be a ball, a ballroom that was turned into a theater. It was on the street called Naunienstrasse. Naunienstrasse means street. So um, it was another theater where they had a um, progressive uh, Turkish German director. Now it's it's moved. It's become like mostly a a, a black, you know, a POC. Black, they, I guess a BIPOC, BPOC theater, um, where they had this this project called uh, Academy of the Autodidacts. So like. Uh, people, the Academy of People Teaching Themselves, basically, you know, and they had this film project called News from the Neighborhood, where they would make films like once a month about, um, they would pick a topic. Um, one time it was on blackness, one time it was on, there was these, there were these murder series of neo-Nazi murders where they, uh, over, they killed um, people, uh, Turkish Germans mostly, over a decade, and one Greek person, and one a Greek German person, and uh, um, a police officer. But even though these murders had, had been Perpetrated by neo Nazis, they accused. They said it was a. It was. They called it the Derna Mafia. Like Derna is this sandwich that that, that Turkish German shops sell. Um, they they so they accused the the people who are the victims of neo Nazi bonds of, of committing murders against themselves. You know, they said, so um, that was the that was like one of the topics. So and then they would as part of that that film project there would be two mentors and then they would show the films in the month and the theater was always packed. So I was really, I participated in that a number of times as I was doing the, the research for this book. And I was really inspired by that model as a way of thinking about the future of the city and also bringing voices that are not usually heard into the, into the discussion about how that um, future might be actualized. And so this, this project, which I began in Detroit with a, a theater, with a filmmaker from Berlin um, in 2014, we wanted to do the same kind of thing in Detroit where we were, we would make it, then it was over three weeks and it would include people from Detroit and people from the university of Michigan, um, making films about the future of the city, thinking about Detroit as a place in which is not like people don't think of Detroit as a valuable place from which to imagine the future often, but I think it's critical, right? If I'm thinking about, I mean, Detroit is an 80%, I mean, the relationship to this book is Detroit is also an 80% black city. Um, but to think about the future from the perspective of the people who are, you know, some of the most marginalized is critical to thinking about any kind of viable future for, you know, at all, I think. Um, and so we, in, in that project we make, and which is also um, related to the, the project in Berlin, Filming the Future from Berlin, which was 2015 was the so-called summer migration in Germany when there were a, a million Syrian refugees came to, to Berlin 
um, in Berlin in that first iteration, 2000, the summer of 2015, also with the filmmaker um, from Berlin with whom we I began the um, Detroit project, um, Ila Gottschlisch. Um, and and um, Savannah Santamaria was also one of the filmmakers who's been, who's been working with me on this for a while, in addition to Theater X, where we did the first project in Berlin. Um, the mostly Syrian uh, people had just come to Germany or had been there for you know, a short period of time, then also made films about the future of the city from their perspective. We call it non-citizen perspectives on the future of the city. Um, and then later, um, and so we showed, we made those films in which people would ask their own research question, and then they would then make the film about that question. And then we screened them in, in Detroit or Berlin, and then most recently in Philadelphia. Um, and so we've been doing that since you know, 2014, 2015 in Berlin, and then last, 2022 in Philadelphia. Now we're thinking about um, how to how to uh, exhibit those films more broadly, as a as a broader take on the, the future of the city from non-citizen from Black perspectives. As a, you know, um, particularly these these post-industrial cities where it's not clear how one should imagine the future, um, and where the the non-citizen or African perspective is not normally thought about. So that Mamadou in the book um, made a film about his experience. Uh, of coming to to Germany, and then um, given that he's when he when he came, I, I talked about this earlier. But when he came, people kept saying, "Well, we asked he asked me this too in the theater. You know, how am I going to stay here? I don't have a status. I don't have a legal status." And people kept saying, "Well, you can either get married to a German woman uh, or have a baby. Like those are the two main main ways that we're telling him to stay." And he said, "Well." I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, I don't, I'm not ready to have a baby. I don't want to get married because he could see the problems with that too, right? That creates an, a, that he wouldn't be able to really be who he wanted to be in that condition. So he said his solution to the film, which was called Change the System, you know. Um, so that was the, uh, and that, so that we've been doing for a while, um, almost every summer now in, in, in Berlin and then in Detroit as well, and then once in, in Philadelphia. Yeah, I liked uh, your descriptions of the films in the book because they were very, you know, poignant, very critical. Um, and then you also talk about the sometimes the responses that they elicit from the audience. It was that was uh, a great section of the book. Um, so one of the reasons I was interested in your book is because I'm working on a project about how Afro-Brazilians take up African-American history and culture. And so I am really interested in these transnational flows of blackness. And I think that they're really important because they carry these unforeseen modes of power that can be leveraged by others um, that one would not possibly previously have thought of. And so you talk about how, you know, blackness opens up spaces for non-black and black people in, you know, in Germany to find expression. And of course you give us this like critical context in which sort of blackness makes this possible. Um, and so I wondered what you thought about like the particularity of African-American blackness. And is, is there something about African-American blackness that lends itself to universality or is it also blackness beyond the United States? Um, so I just wanted to, to know what you thought about that. And then, you know, what, what are the implications that you see of your argument and, you know, what do you want people to take from it? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, this idea that when one talks about blackness or universal or global blackness, that one's only talking about American blackness often leads, I mean, in some contexts that leads to people to dismiss it. They say, well, this is not, has nothing to do with us, particularly 
people critiquing the use or invocation of blackness, I guess, are, are do, often doing that. Um, and then, then it becomes like for scholars writing about blackness in other contexts or artists trying to, to talk about blackness in other contexts or activists trying to articulate blackness in other contexts, it makes the, the struggle that much, it can potentially make the struggle that much harder. Like if it's not, if it's seen as only American, right? So I think that even what pe- people perceive as American blackness is already transnational, you know, like it's already, you know, like, like hip hop is not just American, right? It's also, it relies on the, like Caribbean sound systems, you know, like, um, like Brazil is a, I mean, like you I mean, you, you can say much more about, you know, like the importance of blackness in Brazil, but it's like, um, that has a huge global impact as well. So I think that, um, there are a lot of America because obviously the way American media circulates and the, and also it kind of rebrands or repackages or, or appears to be only American. But in fact, I think it's already a, a transnational form, um, that, um, creates a, a transnational kind of possibility. Um, so I think it's even, so I think it should be taken seriously, you know, like, um, and it should also then be thought of, but in being taken seriously, it's also like it, it's transnational dimensions should also be, should be, should be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I hundred percent agree. Um, and so I think that that is the, uh, question about the book. And so we usually end the interviews with these questions of the future. And, uh, and so what you're working on next, uh, you know, do you have any upcoming projects or, you know, any other kinds of activities that are on the horizon now that the book Blackness as a Universal Claim is out in the world? Yeah, I mean, I do have a few projects. Like one is the thinking about how to circulate these films and thinking about, um, like I've been talking about like starting the, the uh, doing a, a book kind of a, a multimodal book. So it's not really a book, but it's, we'll still call it a book. I mean, like, because it will work through the um, book publishing system, but to think about publishing, how to circulate these films and how to get other people to participate and also going to other cities, like perhaps Johannesburg and South Africa, um, New York city, you know, um, Mumbai and India, um, to think about like the connections between these cities and connections between futures and 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 if there's a way of connecting futures or, or linking people um, transnationally to think of collectively about futures, people who no, aren't normally consulted when when uh, policymakers or or urban planners are thinking about the city or the future of the city. Um, and then the other project that I've been working on a lot recently is this one that is on Detroit. Um, called, that which the central question is how does how does white space get produced in a black city? Um, and thinking about the implications of that that kind of production on blackness in a black city, and then on on, on black possibility. Um, but then also thinking of Detroit as a, a space from which one should, like a critical space from which one should imagine the future, and that kind of future could be applicable then also in other other places. Mm-hmm. Wow, well that really sounds fascinating and wish you um, the best as you pursue these projects. Um, I think both of those projects sound so rich. Um, and I, I think the, the film project is interesting in that I, I 100% agree. As I was reading the book, I thought, oh, I would love to see these films. And so I know that there will be an audience waiting to, to watch them. So that sounds um, wonderful. 
Uh, so thank you so much for sharing the book with us. I have been speaking with Damani Partridge, the author of Blackness as a Universal Claim, Holocaust Heritage, Non-Citizen Futures, and Black Power in Berlin, published by the University of California Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for your questions as well and inviting me to this conversation. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.